Well, good morning to the you know, 20 of you who are here, and I pray that the hundreds of us who are possibly watching from home uh, are led to be edified by God's Word. I recognize and I remember that whenever my sister and I were calling in sick during our childhood years, that it was always a burden on our parents, and they, in kindness, would always pass down that burden onto us by making us continue to do school, even though we were home sick. There would be flashcards that would come out of nowhere. There would be worksheets or coloring things that would emerge from the attic or the closets. And you think, oh, this is time where I get a break. And they say, if it's not a break for us, it's not a break for you. Now, one thing that I never really uh, did well at or never really cared to do well at was English or grammar in high school or in middle school, but there is one thing about grammar uh, that I do understand, and it is a pet peeve of mine, and whenever I see it, I just try to fix it, or whenever I notice it on someone else's computer screen, I try to butt in and grab their keyboard and try to fix it. The one thing I know about grammar is when to appropriately, appropriately use and, A-N-D, and when to appropriately use an ampersand, you know, that and sign. There is a difference You don't just use them when you need more space on a line or if you need to make up more space on a a report. There there is a difference for when you use and in an ampersand. Ampersands, I know you're dying to know, are used when two people or two works go together as one unit. uh, Or they must go together to to make one thing. You think of AT&T. Or you think of A&W root beer. Or you think of Ben and Jerry's. It's not just Ben's ice cream. It's not just Jerry's ice cream. It's Ben and Jerry's. Without one, you must have the other. Or Rogers and Hammerstein. This is mostly used, though, or most notably used, within the art sphere of our world. So imagine co-writing and co-directing a movie with Steven Spielberg. Somehow he asks you to make Jaws 7 with him. So you, you help him write it. You help them direct it, and it's time for you to apply to an Oscar, to win an Oscar, and you want to make sure that you are not just part of his aura, but that you are side-by-side placed with Steven Spielberg in whatever movie you just wrote. So you would use, you know, Steven Spielberg and Ampersand, your name, so that when the credits roll, they know that it was a joint venture between you two, right? It wasn't just him and then someone else, but rather it was him and you. You know, you think of writing invitations to someone. Or a couple of weeks ago, or last week, when we brought in new members into our church, you might have recognized that in the order of worship, we, we place the, the, the spouses together, the husband and ampersand, ampersand wife together, right? And, and then we would use and to designate them from another uh, group altogether. But we have to recognize that there are times when we must place one and two in the same existence. You know, who would want the candy M without the candy M? You want M&Ms, right? You don't just want an M, you want the whole thing. They must go together. Now, I know what you're saying. I don't care. And I know what you're asking. Why should I care? Well, I'm happy to tell you. I need you to see that the two phrases that were given in Matthew chapter 11 must go together for us to understand the gospel. Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, and Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 must hold together. They don't just go together like you would match up clothes. They're not just pieces of two similar things that you place 
side by side. They're not just adjectives that seem to go together to make us feel good inside. These aren't phrases that build one another up. They are phrases that showcase a clear picture of who God is. And they must go together. In his own words, Jesus proclaims to the world of himself that he is a God of woe and that he is a God of welcome. He is wrathful and he is receptive at the same time. In verse 28, it says, Woe to you. And in verse 28, it says, Come to me. Woe to you, in verse 21. And come to me, in verse 28. I think it's necessary, and I trust you go out from here realizing that it is necessary for your understanding of God and his gospel for you to take these two phrases together. They're not just words given to some people, but they are words given from the same person. The woe of Christ is juxtaposed with the come of Christ. Jesus indicates you are in one or the other. He casts out a woe on some people, and he casts out a welcome on others. And so you can't just see him as, well, he's this way to them, and he's that way to us. But you have to hold all these things together. Now, why should we take these things together? Why am I arguing that these two phrases must go together? There there are three things. So still in your introduction, there are three things I think that this tells us of why these two things should go together. First of all, they give us a summary of the Christian gospel. There is no better way to summarize the Christian gospel in other seeing his woe and his welcome. We have these two phrases, these two sides of the same coin. Woe to you and come to me. The whole of the gospel on that same coin. It's not just part of something. Your, your understanding of the gospel must be a complete understanding of what Jesus says about himself and of what Jesus says about what he is to do. Now, in our day, in our public sphere, there is mass confusion on what the gospel is. And I think we can see it from these two phrases. You, you hold on to one and neglect the other. You, you hold on to the other and neglect the first. Right? So they, they give us a summary of the gospel. Second reason is they show us the seriousness of this very moment. As in you here this morning, or you watching online at this very moment, these two phrases show us the seriousness of the word actually being preached. The most serious thing you and I can do on a regular basis is to hear the gospel proclaimed, or the gospel heralded. Because through the preaching... God's word says, and Jesus says, through his own preaching, the kingdom is actually extended to the ends of the earth. Hearts are changed by the preaching of the word. By your actual hearing of the word preached, your heart is changed. And so these two phrases must be understood as and, ampersand, statements. In all of these things, you should listen to, and there there are many good things to listen to, but you should listen to, when it comes to the preaching of the word, that it was Jesus In this full text, who before these two statements says, he who has ears, let him hear. So as you hear the gospel, truly your eternity is is being positioned or being aimed. There is a seriousness in this very moment from these two phrases. But thirdly, the reason why these are placed together is they help us see why the world is divided about Jesus. By understanding that there is a woe and welcome in Christ, you and I get a better grasp on the why the world is divided when it comes to the person of Jesus. He says to us in verse 25 of why they 
are divided about him. He says that some things are hidden and some things are revealed. He also says in verse 27, in the second part of verse 27, he says that he is the one who actually divides different people within the understanding of who he is. So here are two statements by one person to different people. Two incredibly divisive statements, woe and welcome, yet they go together. And as they go together, I think you'll see from from these two statements that there are three uh, questions that rise to the top. But you must know these two statements in, in one way. You're either in one group or the other. You're either woed against or you're welcome to Christ. But it, but it raises a couple of questions to our attention, and that's what my sermon will be from today. So there's an important question, number one, that is clear, that is asked. Who is the man that speaks like this? Who's the man that speaks with a woe? And who's the man that speaks with this welcome? And how are they coming together? So firstly, who is the man who speaks like this? If you're not a Christian here this morning, you hear me say that that this moment, hearing the word preached, is the most important thing in the world, that I'm saying you must take this man seriously, you must heed his word, you must understand what he is saying. And the question is, why do I need to understand that guy? Why do I need to understand what he's saying? It's a good question. And you've got to understand that the person who says these words is actually the object of the faith of, I pray, everyone else around you. The person who is saying these words is the actual object of our religious faith. Our faith is not a pattern. Our faith is not a religious practice. It's not a set of rules. It's not a liturgical rites. But our, the object of our faith is the person who is speaking this woe and this welcome. So who is the man who speaks with the woe? Well, he says, come. And who is the man who speaks with a welcome? He is the man who says, woe on those who deny him. These are staggering statements, which raises the attention of who has the audacity to say these things. What should we make of this person who claims to be Christ? Well, first, I think it it is helpful for you in just asking the question, who is the man who makes these statements? I think you have to take him at who he is. I think you have to see him according to how he reveals himself. I think think you have to owe him attention of how he presents himself to the world around him. There's nothing else logical to do. If you don't take him for who he is, you're not really doing reality justice. You think of this and how someone might portray themselves to you. You have to take them as a whole, right? Or else you're not doing them justice. You're not doing your understanding. If you ignore some things about some people, you're not really seeing them for who they truly are, right? And with Jesus, you have to take him for how he is revealed to us. Now, often people uh, take some things uh, about Jesus and they ignore other things about him. Or they they take the things that are ignored by other people about Jesus and they really hold on to the other stuff that are claimed on. But he must be taken as he is. He must be taken as he is presenting himself as a whole. Who is he? Now, often men and women avoid this. Biographies rarely do this. Anytime you read a biography, especially about like a political figure or a historical figure, there's a, there's a little angelology that goes, angelology that goes on in that, right? You, you might read something about a very bad person, and they're still portrayed sympathetically. You know? And what we see and what we must do when it comes to Jesus is see the entire picture of him. What will you find when you take Jesus for who he is? Well, first you will see his harshness. When you take Jesus for who he is, you'll see his severity. Woe, this Christ says. 
Jesus in the Gospels is a confronting man, a reprimanding person, a condemning person. He is strict. He is forceful. You could see how many people, they, they just hang on to this part, right? This is really their only God, the man who's really out to get everyone else. But when you also take Jesus as a whole, you see someone who is not just portrayed as a lion, but you also see someone who is portrayed as a lamb, someone who is gentle, someone who speaks to the outcast, someone who heals those who are eager, someone who promises rest to the weary, someone who says to anyone who is an outcast, come to him. You see a a harshness and a severity when it comes to Christ. You see authority and you also see lowliness. You see majesty placed against meekness and mildness. And these are descriptions of his character. This is what you'll find all over the Gospels. And this is why you must take him for who he is in full. You must listen to all of who he is who asks men and women to take him as he is. He claims absolute authority to proclaim woe. But he also claims absolute authority to cast a net of welcome and invitation to his table. He claims to be the authority of life and the living. He claims that he alone can give peace and rest. He claims that if you follow him, you'll come to true life. You'll come to eternal life if you heed his invitation. He claims to be the judge of all men, that that mankind's destiny depends only and totally on him, and in his overwhelming authority, in his total reign over the world, it is still this, this woeful and this just God who invites you to himself. He says that your relationship with him dictates your destiny. Who is this man? He's, he's answered this for us. Look at verse 25 and Verse 27 of Matthew chapter 11, it says, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone whom the Son wills to reveal him. Here is the answer of who this man is. If you you look at one side only, his woe, then you don't get the fullness of his grace. If you look at the other side, his welcome, then you don't see him as the one who has the authority to actually welcome people to the table. Look at him as a whole. Look at him in his entirety. Look at him as he is. There's only one explanation. There is only one explanation of who he is. He is none other than the only begotten son. That's who he presents himself as. That's who he claims to be. That's who he's worshipped as. Even those who fear him or those who don't like him, they definitely notice that there is something unique, even eternally, about him. And he doesn't hesitate to say that he alone knows the Father. He alone is the bridge from death to life. He alone is the revelation of mercy. He alone claims that nobody knows the loving Father except those to whom he reveals himself. And this is a staggering claim. Now, friends, if you are here and you're not a Christian, if you take Jesus for who he is, who he says he is, then you must conclude, if you just take him according to his word and you take him according to the historical account, you take him for all the claims that our religion has, non-Christian, you must conclude that he is either a madman, right? He's a psychopath. Or 
He is who he says he is, the Son of God. There's no other options in between that. He is either this person or that person, and you have to take him for who he is according to how he has revealed himself. He's either claimed to be someone who is arrogant and psychotic, or he is someone who is claiming to be and is the Savior of the world. If he's a madman, then friend, continue to ignore him. And if, he's, and if he says who he says he is, and if he is who he says he is, then friend, you cannot afford to ignore him. Here's why we should listen to him. He says that he is the incarnate Son of God who has come from the heavens to save men from their sins. And, is this, and he is the one who has absolute authority over your soul. This one who says, come. The one who recognizes the fallenness of the world. The one who recognizes the own sinfulness in your heart. It is him who says, come. Alongside him saying, whoa. So that's who our Lord is from this text. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. But another question comes from, or comes up to the top, what has this man said? If we recognize that who he is, what has he said about himself? This is another example of why we must take these two phrases together of what Christ has said in this one portrayal of himself, seeing, seeing their connections with an ampersand, not just a separate and. Woe and come to me. One is a threat. One is a judgment that's been cast out on people. And one is taking those in. One is a gracious invitation. And I'm under no illusion that most people will not take these things together. Most of you, you will have to admit, and most people around, they take Jesus as one or the other. They want to put him in a box and ignore the rest. Most people don't like these two phrases being side by side. They don't, they don't take the person who is saying these things, woe and welcome. They don't take him with equal weight, equal force, equal promise. They say there's only one message, taking one over the other. They in no way would ever see them together. Now, popular theology today refuses to acknowledge the first, the woe, and takes the second, come to me, out of context entirely. Look at a Christian bookstore. Look at the, look at the teaching that, that shows itself in the reels of Instagram or TikTok. Those, those preachers who are most popular through the algorithms because people want to listen to him and understand him and see from him. What are they saying about this Christ? It's about Jesus inviting you to be yourself to be the best that you can be, to be the optimal version of you, to find your inner potential to where you can almost be, they won't say this, but to where you can be nearly divine in how God has made you. They take the come and they leave out the to me. Or they, they portray the come to me and they leave out the repentance from yourself and from your flesh and from your natural purposeful sin. So much as ignoring the symptom of our soul. Who are we? And ignoring the symptom of the solution. Who is God? And yet here is Christ, the Son of God, saying to us that the one he says he is, the one that says that he has been given absolute authority over not only heaven and the earth, but also the created creatures within those things. And what does he say? He says, woe. Why? because of their unrepentance from their sins. And, ampersand, he says what? Come. Why? Because of his nature. Because of his promise. Because of his grace. Not theirs. His. 
not their work, but his. Their sins gain them woe, we see that in verse 21, but his love, an extension of himself, his love that flows out, now invites those who deny him to come to him. Now the popular idea today is that God is love no matter what. Love is love. God will love everyone. Maybe even controversially here, let's go two weeks in a row, Maybe even controversially here, you've heard one say to you, you've had someone come up to your doorstep, you've had someone stop you with a track on the street and says, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It sounds cute. It sounds nice. But from which words of God was that half-truth taken from? Now imagine someone coming up to you saying, you're the richest man in the world and everyone likes you. Now, let me tell you on why you're not so great. Well, you just told me that I'm wealthier and that I'm more loved than anyone. So what do I care what you have to say? Where do these words come from? Where love is love and God loves no matter what and there is no damnation for the unforgiveness or unrepentance of sins. It's nowhere biblically. The New Testament authors never wrote that. If you were to evangelize, to other people around you, like the apostles or the evangelists in the New Testament, you would would never go up to someone and start with, you are perfect and how God made you and he loves you no matter what. And by the way, let me tell you something else. No, you would use words like they did. The, The apostles never preached like that. Jesus never said things like that. John the Baptist never announced that. The prophets never pronounced that. The the psalmist never understands the coming Messiah to reveal himself and say to you, you're wonderful however you are. Moses never records that. Where did this come from? Well, in ignorance of the full gospel to the whole sinner, and it must first hear of the reality that he is not God, you are not in control, and the depravity of your actions And the delineation of the world is only but a symptom of what is in your heart. What Jesus says, what Jesus explains in our Gospels and shows repeatedly in our Gospels is that the good life, the blessed life, the life eternal that is offered to everyone is unattainable according to your heart's current position, according to your work, Because you need what you don't have. You need a new heart entirely. You don't need more effort. You don't need effort on its own. You need a heart transplant from God. This is unattainable by our own work because we recognize that we need a new heart. Friends, our hearts actually keep us from the goodness of God. Now, last week I, I kind of gave a portrayal and I gave it over here like this. So I'm going to go back to it where I said one of my dad's friend's offices growing up, it, it had this giant picture painting of us on one side of a deep crevice and God's glory on the other side and that there is a cross that we must walk across to get to God's glory. There is a cross that we must encounter in order to get to God's glory. Now, the, the question that, that our text exposes here is what separates us from God's glory? It is not the ditch in its effort. It is not the ditch in its terrain. What separates us from God's goodness is our heart entirely. 
That's what separates us from God's love. That's what separates us from God's glory. This is why the Bible says that we need to be born again, or we need to be made new, or we need a regeneration. We need to be restarted. We're not drowning in the sea as it's been portrayed by other people. We are actually dead underwater at the bottom of the beach. We need to be made new. His promises need to be given to us. His effort needs to regenerate our hearts. He says, and he makes this promise, and he makes this need known in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26, and says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And the Christian's rebirth, what this looks like is actually described to us, what a rebirth or a regeneration looks like, this is described to us in Titus chapter 3 verse 5. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says, he has saved us, not because of the works done by us in righteousness, he saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy. You see the, the woe and the welcome here. How are we welcome to the table? Christ's mercy. How are we Uh, being bestowed upon with a woe? Well, by the works done by us. He goes on to say, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The recipients of these verses of Matthew 11, verse 21, Matthew 11, verse 21 in its entirety, this woe that Christ says, it's because they heard and they refused the gospel. They heard the gospel that said they needed to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ, and they said, I don't need to turn from my sins. I'm fine who I am. God loves me no matter what. I'm okay. God has a wonderful plan for my life. And he says, woe to these two cities. I hope you see why it's so dangerous to give half-truths in the name of love, when in reality, it is no love at all. How many people roam around thinking, well, whatever. I can act how I want. I can treat my wife how I want. I can treat my parents how I want. I can steal for whatever I want because at the end of the day, I know that God loves me, so who cares? Even though they deny him and even though they're called by his word as his enemies, even though they believe or they have been told horribly by others that he won't cast out woes because that's just the God of the Old Testament and we're living in New Testament times. He'll he'll love them for who they are. And this is why it is necessary to see these two statements together. Without both of these statements, this woe and this welcome, you don't have the gospel. They don't contradict each other, but they go hand in hand to describe the gospel to us. Now think of your Bible as a whole. Think of your your Bible, the whole book, all together. You know it has two sections, right? An Old and a New Testament. The, The Old giving an anticipation of the Messiah to come through the pronouncing of woes on the soul again and again, longing for the one who will achieve this welcome for them. And then in the New Testament, what the New Testament does for us is reference back again and again on the welcome that is being offered through the person of Christ Jesus and the effectiveness of that author by his own, uh, by that author, offer, O-F-F-E-R, offer, by his offer, given to us by his death and resurrection. One gives us the law, which we see law, which we see God and his holiness and our sins, separation from his holiness. And one gives us the grace in Christ where we see his holiness being extended to us 
in regenerating our hearts on the basis of a son's sacrificial death on the cross. Friends, you cannot have one without the other. Grace means nothing without the sacrifice that is needed from God. And when you think of the gospel, you have half a gospel if it's just God's love and not just God's justice or God's wrath or God's holiness. How weak of a savior he will be if he has no power and authority over sin and evil and despair. It is as conquering as you might play king of the mountain on a playground. Guess what? The bell rings and you go inside and no one cares. But in the gospel, wrath is being poured out on sin so that you are held up in victory. Think of the first preacher in the New Testament, John the Baptist. What did he preach? Baptism of repentance and the remission of sins. He warned people to flee the wrath to come. And Jesus did the same thing. We see this in the Gospels account. The first sermon that Jesus gave was one of repentance. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. Repent and believe the Gospel. And what did Peter preach after Pentecost? Repentance. People who heard his sermon were shuddering and shaking begging him to know what to do next. He responded, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds a church before departing that he preached repentance toward God to them. He preached faith that is toward Christ. He said, remember the things that I've preached to you. Repent and faith. Friends, if you ignore what the Bible says about God's gospel, you might as well say that you ignore the Bible's God entirely. And just be honest with yourself. What is the message of the scripture? What has Jesus said about himself? That man has sinned. And that man is guilty. Nothing in the world will make sense in the world. And in your life, if you do not understand that the foundational truth, man has sinned and man is guilty against God. But the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible doesn't just stop with man is sinful and man is guilty. It goes on to say that God hates sin. And God will pour out his wrath on sinful people. God punishes sinners in the very beginning. And though man tries to earn his way back to paradise, God's woe is against him because of his sin. That's what he did with the flood. That's what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he did with the children of Israel. That's what he did to people like David. He doesn't and cannot stand sin. And there in his word, he promises a final judgment when everyone, whoever lived, will stand before God and will give an account. And we'll either hear a woe or we'll hear a welcome. And friends, if you take that out of the message of the gospel, if you take out the woe out of the message of the gospel, then what do you have left? We have no Bible because that's not what the Bible says. You have no gospel, because that's not what the gospel is. The Bible actually proclaims a holy God, a just and righteous God, a God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. He proclaims the whole world is guilty, and the gospel message must start with this. How does the gospel continue, though? If it starts in sin and then brings on a woe, how does the gospel continue? We see all over the scriptures... And we see mostly pronounced in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that when the fullness of time had come, 
when the fullness of time had come that man had sinned and understood the woe was upon him, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, meaning those who were in sin, under the law's punishment. God, the son, came to save those who were guilty by offering them an invitation not to place their trust in themselves, but place their trust in him. The gospel continues to explain that the, God, that the Son of God came to seek and to save the lost. The Son of God came to seek and to save the guilty. The Son of God came to seek and to save the sinner. And he would do this by serving sinners through a death, which provides the sacrifice or an exchange. What God the Son came to do is to exchange his heart for yours. Exchange his life for yours, where your sins would be placed on his shoulders so that his righteousness would then be wrapped around your shoulders by actually for you absorbing the wrath that you and I deserve. This provides what the Bible calls a propitiation, or the the turning away of God's wrath or God's woe. If you imagine propitiation like a massive dam where, where wrath is coming down a river with a giant force, This dam, this propitiation, this work of Christ on the cross actually diverts God's wrath from you to where it is then placed on Jesus altogether. It was poured out on him. He served as a lamb, the Bible portrays, and a sacrifice it demonstrates. This is what the scriptures say about God's Son. But again, what did Jesus say? This man who we've been wondering about, who would ever say this woe and this welcome, what did Jesus say about this? If the Bible says that this is what Jesus came to do, what does Jesus say about what he has come to do? We see that Jesus says when he is about to be taken to the cross and other people are around saying, no, don't go, or like, let's help you get out. And he's saying, look, angels could pull me away. I could do whatever I want. I could pull the sword out if I wanted to, but I have come to die for sinners. He said that he is willing willingly giving himself over as a ransom for sinners. He said to his disciples that there is a reason he is here to provide a sacrifice for those who will follow him. His sacrifice would turn away the woe and allow him to effectively provide a welcome. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said this before the cross because he knew of the cross and where he was headed altogether. He knew that he could welcome him, welcome them to his father's table because he knew that he was about to go be slaughtered. Come to my side, he says. Come to my team. Come to my refuge. Take my yoke. Learn from me because I have the life preserver of your drowned dead heart. It's clear in our scriptures on why the Son of God came to earth. He says that he came to save us from the wrath, from the woe of God that we deserve. Jesus came to provide the way where sin may still be justly punished and yet still save men to a relationship to the Father. This is where, this is where the welcome has so much weight. Friends, if you're not a Christian, this is why Christians show up every week and sing with tears running down our face that in the love of God, he gave his own son over for his people. We can trust. With this, we can trust 
in the love of God because it was God the Father's wrath that was poured out on his Son. You can trust Jesus to be your Savior. You can believe in him to be your Savior. You can know that he is who he is because it was the Father's wrath that was poured out on his Son for you. Justice and love are reconciled. Righteousness and peace, according to the psalmist here, has kissed one another, where the woe meets the welcome. And the welcome overshadows the woe because of the darkness that was put on Christ, on his people's behalf. The Christian gospel is this. Salvation is offered freely because Jesus purchased it completely. But isn't it obvious that Jesus' offer, if his words offered are rejected, that those who would reject his offer are left under the curse of the world? With law, with the commendation, they are lost. Friends, you have to recognize that we on our own are placed under the woe of the gospel. And by turning to Christ, we now receive his welcome. But if we don't turn to Christ, if we just leave that offer on the table, if we just see that invitation of what is portrayed later, of a wedding, uh, wedding invitation for those who receive it, if we just leave it there or deny it completely, we are still left under the woe of the gospel. But with what this man has said, with Christ and by his offered gospel, by him laying down his life, bearing our sins as he's crucified on the cross, God in his pulsating wrath pours out on this suffering son by in him, but in him this sacrificed lamb is the pardon offered and now by his words is offered to you. In this way, man is called to a righteous God on the back of a savior who offers you now a seat at the table bearing a feast that he purchased. And he says, come, sit, dine, rest. Friends, this is the love of God displayed. This is the welcome of the gospel that you might find yourself outside this dinner feast in no way not being allowed to come in. Yet it is Jesus who says, come in, have a seat here, dine, rest in me. But if you reject this only way of salvation, you are still left under condemnation. If you've got a Bible, turn quickly to the book of John, just a couple of books over. The book of John, chapter 3, most notably the most famous or possibly well-known verses in all of Scripture. John chapter 3. John chapter 3, look, a couple of verses that I'll bring your attention to, but first look at John chapter 3, verse 18. John chapter 3, verse 18, where it says, He who believes in him is not judged. What a sweet thing. What a sweet delight. He who believes in him is not judged. He, does, he who does not believe has been judged already. That's the, that's the woe, and then at first you see the welcome. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now turn over maybe in your page to verse 35. Verse 35 of John chapter 3 where it says, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. This is, in many ways, John the Baptist's last will and testament. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He, believes, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Friends, in your natural state of woe, 
If you reject the Messiah's invitation of grace in the woe of the gospel, you will remain. This is the call of the gospel, that you are here and God is offering you eternal life. And if you don't believe in him, that you will remain where you are. Except what he said previously, it will be better for those on the day in the city of Sodom than it will be on you because you've been offered. This is who he is. He is God. This is what he has said. Come to me. But finally and quickly, this last important question, how will he speak? How will Jesus speak to you? This is the real tension of the text. We, we see doctrinally who God is. We see an application of what he has said. But personally now, what will he say to you? Be very careful here. Your minds will want to go things, will want to go through things like you would apply for a job. You, you want to you count your deeds. You want to say when you said a prayer. You want to remember your awards or even recount your apologies. You want to park your hope in your participation, but never a Bible study you missed, never a Sunday you skipped, never a podcast you turned off early. But no, be very careful in remembering that our hope is in our heart, not in our hands. And what I mean by that is Jesus is not silent on why some of these people in these cities receive a woe and other people receive this welcome and respond to it. And the Bible is elsewhere not silent on when people have had, and Jesus explains elsewhere, a removing of the invitation altogether. It is about your heart and not your hands or your feet. Friend, Jesus will speak of you. He will speak to you based on your attitude towards him. Think about it. The disposition of your heart, where it's directed, that is what will showcase how Jesus will speak of you. Your view of him, your thought of him, your heart's desiring him. Look at verse 25 and 26 of Matthew chapter 10. Verse 25 and 26. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them from infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. The Son of God praised the Father for not cheapening His grace on the work of mere peasants. The glory of the Lord, the comfort of Christ, is placed on the hearts of those who know their own heart. Or put another way, if you know you are needy of Christ, you will look to Him to provide you rest. If you know that you are starving and He offers you bread, you will immediately turn to Him and seek out that bread. God's love is hidden, though, from the wise. And this is clearly a sarcastic remark of Jesus. It is hidden from the wise and the intelligent, those who think they know so much, those who think they have earned so much, those who think themselves to be so consumed with the wisdom of the world that, that they don't need this sympathetic and savior person. His grace is hidden, though, from the prideful. So your heart, is it humble or is it full of pride? These people have the gospel hidden from their hardened hearts and self-helping souls. But Jesus prays, Jesus praises his Father for his sweet mercy that has been poured out on those who are simple, on those who know that they need daily bread, on those who are starving infants, the language portrays. 
and the bread of life they eagerly receive. My friend, how will Jesus speak to you? Will he see you as one of faith? Will he see your heart as turned towards him, one who hopes in him, one who hears his invitation and rushes to the door? Know that this Jesus is the one alone who offers you only what he can provide. He is the one with full authority and power, and only he can offer you what you can provide. Know him. Know this Son of God who offers you what you need. Friends, also believe in the Lord Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Believe in him as the one who can save you from the woe of your heart. But also trust in his word. Trust in his work. Trust in his invitation. Trust in him to to save you, to rescue you from your sins. Trust him. Know him. Believe him. Trust him. If you know him, if you believe him, if you trust him, you will never hear a woe from him. Anyway, you'll never hear what this city heard. Truly having faith in him will cause you to turn from your sins. It will cause you to cling to him. It'll cause you to live for him. And you'll never hear a woe from this loving, inviting Savior. I pray that as you hear this, that there is a stirring in your soul. That this work of the Spirit, this this work of the Spirit to to open your eyes to an understanding of who Jesus is, to to open your heart to the desire to believe in him and nothing else, the the opening of a desire to trust in him and not in anything else. I pray that you will yield to this pull and draw of the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit, friend, but allow him to direct your heart to the inviting Son, the gracious Savior, the lover of souls. Pray that God would point your heart to the Son and receive his invitation of eternal life. There are two sides to the coin, a woe and a welcome, and they are equally demonstrating the power and the glory of God. Ask yourself, what is being said to you? What do you have confidence in? Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not remained silent towards us your needy people. We pray that we would respond to the gospel's love, to the gospel's invitation by calling out to you, by receiving you, by trusting you, by believing in you as our Lord. Oh God, we pray that you would continue to stir up in us affection for your grace and your mercy and your love, knowing that it is an outpouring of who you are. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.